Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Morning, church family. So, over years of ministry, I think I've done, I don't know, maybe close to 100 weddings, something like that, and it's been for family, uh, some friends. The really weird one was back when I was a youth pastor, now doing uh, weddings for junior high and high school students that I had in my youth group. That one just totally makes me realize I'm, I'm old. But I will say this, countless weddings, and there have been some similarities in all of them. Uh, some of those similarities have been a beautiful bride being delivered to a very handsome groom by the bride's father. And what we're going to see this morning is some hallelujahs in heaven over the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to take a little bit of a deep dive uh, into what weddings would have been like in ancient times, how much there is to teach us about the second coming of Christ from weddings. So we're going to have a blast together. I am looking forward to the next two months. For the rest of October and November, it's predominantly from this point forward, victory in Jesus. We get to take a look at what heaven is going to be like. We get to take a look at what the worship in heaven is going to be like. And I just hope that it makes you look incredibly forward to what's going to be happening when we get to heaven. I can't wait to get there. In the meantime, the Lord tells us, remain steadfast, keep preaching the gospel, don't keep your mouth shut about Jesus because we want to see as many people as possible worshiping the Lord and shouting out these very same hallelujahs that we're about to read about this morning. So, with that said, in honor of our King, we're in Revelation 19, 1 through 10. If you wouldn't mind standing with me as we read through uh, these 10 verses in the book of Revelation. John says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are, are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thanks, King. So we're going to see that when these individuals in heaven get a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God, they can't help but just shout out hallelujah. In fact, it's the only proper response to God's glory and power. That's our big idea for this morning. Our only proper response to God's glory and power are shouts of praise 
from his servants. His servants will fall down at the feet of the master and cry out, we've got the greatest master of all time. All of these redeemed saints, past and present, are going to be falling down and crying out that one Greek word, alleluia, which literally means praise the Lord. Hallel is that word of praise and yah is the word for God. And so they are praising Yahweh or praising God for all that he's done. That word alleluia is that Hebrew derivative of hallelujah that we cry out. It's only found in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And it's found over and over and over again. And every time it's a shout of praise for God being sovereign or God being king or God being ruler or God being the only creator of everything that's in the universe. You woke up this morning and you got to come to church. Notice the words I'm using. You got to come. We all got to come to church this morning and we get to sing out hallelujahs because the creator of the heavens and the earth and the one that made us, the one that formed and fashioned us inside of our mama's womb, some of us not all that long ago, some of us a long time ago, got formed and fashioned in our mama's womb. And now we get to get up and come and praise the one who crafted us, who made us, who created the entire universe. And that gives us some reasons to shout out hallelujah. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at reasons. We're going to take a look at three of them. There's three reasons we're given for shouting out hallelujahs or for heaven's hallelujahs. The first is right there in verse one. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah. What are they crying out for? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Heaven rejoices because of the saving work of God. There's not a thing. You'll hear this a lot around here. There's not a thing that you or I can do to contribute to our salvation. Not one. Somebody much smarter than myself at one point said the only thing that you've ever done to contribute to your salvation is the need for it. Some of you are just getting that. I know it's still early. Think about that for a moment. The only thing that I've ever done to contribute to my salvation is to make a need for it. So we see this great multitude crying out, praise the Lord. Who is this great multitude? I think it goes back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. In fact, if you've got your Bibles and you want to look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The only people group that we ever read about being clothed in white robes and with palm branches are the church saints, those that have been redeemed by Jesus. And it looks like church saints from long ago in the past, in the present, and even those that are going to be there in the future are all shouting out the praises of the Lord. And what are they shouting out or why are they shouting out? Well, they're praising him for salvation, for glory, and power. Don't miss how those three are linked. There's praise for the salvation that's granted by God, given for the glory of God, and completed by the power that belongs to God. Our salvation is completely and wholly dependent upon what God has done. There's a reason why that is good news. If my salvation was dependent upon anything that I have done, that would mean that I could also turn around and lose it. And as Dr. John MacArthur once said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. 
just, we would. That's because of who we are. We tend to go back and do dumb things over and over again. Any of y'all ever done something dumb in the past, like, say, last week? <laughs> and then you felt really bad, and you asked for forgiveness, and then you did it again this week? Right? So aren't you glad that God doesn't give up on Well, we'll talk more to that in a moment, because we're actually going to find out that the author of Revelation... John, well, the ultimate author is Jesus himself, but he used John to write the words. You'll find out that John did some dumb things a couple of times. We'll get to that in a minute. But let us not forget this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, coming from the hand of the Apostle Paul, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our being set and secure in heaven, can I bank on the fact that I'm actually going to be there? What if I mess up? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6. God has raised us up with him, that being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised us up with him. That's five words in the English language. There's only one in the Greek. We actually turn that into five words. The Greek word synagairo, synagairo or like synergy, is in what we would call the aorist active indicative tense. Now that might mean nothing to you. The word aorist literally just means past. Active means it's happening and indicative means it's a fact. So it happened in the past, it's still happening now and it's a fact. Let me show you why I brought that up. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He states it as though it's happened in the past. But it hasn't happened yet. I'm not in heaven yet. I'm not sitting with Jesus. So why did Paul say that? Because of Christ's death on the cross and then his proving that his death on the cross paid the penalty for all of our sins by rising again from the dead, Paul says your salvation is set. It's guaranteed. There's no question mark. It's as good as done. It's like you're already in heaven even though you're not there yet. All right, mind like blown yet, anybody? <laughs> Revelation chapter 19, verses 2 and 3 says, For his, just, his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great multitude who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. All of heaven is rejoicing because of the severe wrath of God. Again, why in the world is there rejoicing over wrath? Because to us, this just sounds strange. But if you were living in a place where you were constantly persecuted and tortured for your faith, or somebody that you loved was constantly persecuted and tortured for their faith, you would be thankful that God will punish evil one day. We are not experiencing what our brothers and sisters in China are experiencing right now. We're not experiencing what our brothers and sisters in India at the hands of, of, believe it or not, Hindu terrorists are experiencing right now. And if you haven't heard about what's going on in Israel right now, there's been a massive attack by Hamas, by Is Islamic terrorists. And we have uh, brothers and sisters who are Messianic Jews there who are trusting in the goodness of Jesus and that he will take care of these very folks that are coming after them. Now, you may not know this, but what is happening over there right now is nothing new. The nation of Islam really can trace its lineage all the way back to Esau and the Edomites, believe it or not. 
It goes all the way back to that time. So really, this is just the same people group with a different name right now, terrorizing God's people. God's people have been terrorized ever since their inception. And do you know why? Because it's the family line, the lineage that the Messiah, the creator of the universe, was going to enter into his creation through. And Satan and his minions hate that. So Israel has been under attack ever since their inception, ever since God called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and raised up this people group that we call the Israelites. They have had virtually no time in their history where they haven't been attacked. And I am willing to bet that if I was one of those people that saw my wife being tortured and murdered, my daughters, friends, other family members, that I would want them to be brought down. And yet Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, to the people of Israel that are undergoing some of these torturous attacks. He says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. That takes a lot of pressure off of us because we don't have to do the exacting of revenge or vengeance. The Lord will take care of it. But let's be real with each other. How many of y'all have a hard time blessing people that hurt you or hurting others? They've hurt others, maybe somebody that you love, and you have a really hard time blessing that. Well, I think that what we do is we start small. Can we start with praying for those that are quite evil and trapped by the evil philosophies and ideologies of Satan, of his minions, of the world. Well, let's move on to the rejoicing part. Go to verses 4 through 6 with me. And it says, And the 24 elders, most likely, again, representative of the 12 apostles that represent the church, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel that represent the Old Testament saints, it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Heaven rejoices because of the sovereign will of God. When we see the word throne, it's referring to a seat of power, and it's referring to a seat of authority, which is why God is pictured seated on a throne. The word throne is used 52 times in the New Testament. 38 of those times it's found only in the book of Revelation, which is why I would say that the book of Revelation is what I call a throne book. It really helps us to understand what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, I get it. Revelation's hard. From Revelation 1 to Revelation chapter 22, there's some passages in there that you're going, this could be kind of hard to understand. But I will tell you this, from reading Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, over and over and over again, while there may be some, some tough passages, you can really sum up the whole book in 10 words. You ready? Jesus is on the throne. That's the first five. And he is coming again. That's the next five. That's the entire book of Revelation. All right, let's pray amen and go home. We'll keep going. But really, that's Revelation in a nutshell. Jesus is on the throne, and he is coming again. 
And it's so good for us to remember that because, again, look at what's going on in Israel right now with this Hamas attack. Look at what's going on in the attack against God's word and the true historical Jesus in many of our secular universities and schools today. Look at what's being plastered across billboards or what comes through your television screens or what most music is portraying right now. And you begin to wonder sometimes, God, are you still on the throne? And Jesus, are you really coming again? And what does scripture tell us? Absolutely, God is on the throne. Let's just trace history. He always has been. He's always in control. And he brings down any nation that rebels against him. We don't have to doubt that. Is he coming again? Well, I don't know, man. It's been 2,000 years. Well, don't forget they waited over 1,000 for him to come the first time. And I'm praising God that he's being patient in the second coming. Because with the first coming, he came gently and lowly and mildly. And to bring with him mercy and forgiveness. At the second coming, he's going to bring judgment and he's going to exact vengeance. I'm sure thankful that he's waiting. Now with God being on the throne, did you know that that means that there's no such thing as an accident? Did you know that nothing that's ever happened in all of human history has ever been by accident. God has used all of it and is going to continue to use all of it for his glory and for the good of his kids. Even the nasty stuff that we have to go through. Let me give you an illustration. An old cowboy went in and he applied for health insurance and life insurance. He went up and he spoke to the broker and he said, I really need health insurance and I, and I really need life insurance because I'm getting up there and, and being in the line of work that I'm in, in the ranching business, um, it could be dangerous. And the agent says, well, before I can give you the insurance, I got to ask you at least a couple questions. Here's the first. Have you had any accidents in the past year? He said, nope, no accidents. I did get bitten by a rattlesnake. I did get bucked off my horse. And my mule did kick me in the head. And the guy's like, well, wait a minute. I thought you said you had no accidents. He looks at the broker and says, I didn't. They all did it on purpose. So... <laughs> think about this for a moment. Everything that happens in our lives, regardless of how bad it is, is all for a reason. And none of it catches God by surprise. That would have been incredibly comforting to John. Because if you all remember, work with me here, Bible scholars. When John's writing the book of Revelation, he's in this nice palace, getting bathed, eating grapes. Where is he? He's on the island of Patmos all by himself. We don't know this for sure, but he most likely dies of starvation and dehydration. Most likely. He's older, he's frail, he's got nobody around him, and he's completely exiled just waiting to die while God is giving him all these amazing visions of what heaven is going to look like. If you ever feel like you're on your island of Patmos, wondering, Jesus, where are you when I need you the most? Don't forget, he's right where he was when he was with John, right beside him. How do I know that he even cares that he walks with me? Let's just keep looking at the cross. Anytime I begin to doubt whether or not God is still there, whether or not he cares, whether or not he still loves his kids, the answer is the cross. Now here's what John could have said. Woe is me because Caesar's on the throne. Instead, what did John do? Hallelujah, Jesus is on the throne. Here's the difference. Woe is me, Caesar's on the throne, or hallelujah, Jesus is on the throne. I'll tell you what, it looks like certain rulers are on the throne. They don't have a throne. They have a position of power and authority, but for a very brief period of time. Jesus is on the throne forever. 
And I tell you what, my Jesus will never be removed. Think about that. He'll never be removed. You've heard it before. I want to say it again. Jesus doesn't sit on a love seat that he shares with someone else. He sits on a singular throne and nobody gets to share that with him. That means that we've got zero to worry about. In fact, let's keep rejoicing. Let's keep our head held high because God is on the throne. He's still the one that's in control. Here's where the rejoicing continues. I told you all that we're going to dive into ancient weddings and we're going to. We're going to take a look at more of that in just a moment. But I want to begin to take a look at what's going to make this wedding so glorious. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What's going to make this marriage of the lamb so magnificent? The glory of the groom makes the marriage of the lamb magnificent. Now, the music has ended. The songs are done. You know, you've been to a wedding before, right? Where all the music is going, where everybody's standing, the bride is walking down the aisle, and once the music comes to an end, the ceremony begins. Now, there is all kinds of metaphors used in Scripture to describe the church's relationship to Christ. Two of them that are most prominent outside of being a slave of Christ is body of Christ and bride of Christ. The body of Christ tells us how near we are to Jesus. He is the head. And the only way that we live is when we're attached to the head. So being the body of Christ tells us how near we are to him, but being the bride of Christ tells us how dear we are to him, that he would die for us. Now, the second thing that we're about to see in regards to the magnificence of the marriage supper of the Lamb revolves around the bride herself. Second thing that we see in those two verses is that the beauty of the bride from the clothes that she's given, makes the marriage of the Lamb magnificent. The beauty of the bride. This is going to be a bride that's more beautiful than any bride that's ever walked any aisle. Now, I want you to note that those fine linens that we're going to get as the bride were granted to us. So don't miss this in verse 8, because I've actually heard false religions and cults teach on this, that see this right here proves that we've got to do something in order to earn our righteousness. But look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We can only do good works for the Lord because he allows us to. Because in and of ourselves, according to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, if I was left to myself, I would never seek God. I would never look to serve him. So even my ability to serve him and earn some rewards in heaven are all a gift from the Lord. Now, I want to pause for a moment as we're talking about the garments that the bride gets to wear as she walks down the aisle. I want to take a little bit of a deep dive into ancient weddings and show you how this speaks to our relationship with Jesus. Now, we have to keep in mind that we're not actually married to Christ yet in the final sense. We're in what's, what's called the betrothal phase. We're betrothed to Jesus now, to help us understand that, let's unpack ancient betrothals and weddings. In biblical times, the bride would be chosen by the parents of the groom and the bride. They would get together and they would decide whether or not this would be a good match and a good arrangement. I like that idea. I have girls. But once the arrangement was made by the parents, they would enter into a one-year betrothal phase. 
Now, this was so legally binding that the only way the betrothal could be broken was through a written certificate of divorce. Think back to the Christmas story. Y'all remember what happened when Mary, the Immaculate Conception, the Holy Spirit overshadows her. She's found to be pregnant. This looks scandalous. So Joseph is about to write her a certificate of divorce. And you may be going, well, wait a minute. They're not even married yet. Why does he write her a certificate of divorce? Because they're in that one-year betrothal phase. Now, what's happening during the betrothal phase? Well, during the betrothal phase, the groom would be at his father's house, building on top of the house. Usually, they would have these one-story, flat-roofed houses. And when the groom would propose to the bride and the acceptance was made, he'd go back and he'd start building on top of the father's house. And he'd be preparing for this elaborate wedding ceremony. What's the bride doing? Well, her and those that would be her bridesmaids and her mother are probably sewing these elaborate wedding clothes. Can you imagine what they could sew in a year? It's probably going to be some fascinating-looking clothes. On top of all of that, a dowry would have been given to the bride by the groom. What is a dowry? That is a gift, usually a very expensive gift. The groom would give to her whatever he had that was of most value, making her aware of the fact that I am going to come back and I am going to get you. At the end of the one-year betrothal, the groom would come back He would get the bride and he would take her to the father's house. And this usually would involve some huge procession. All kinds of people, all the people that were invited to the wedding would line the streets and they would have these lamps and they'd all be singing this wedding song and cheering together as they lit the way for the bride and the groom to go all the way back to the father's house. The bride would be bathed, she'd be adorned like a queen, precious jewels would be all over either a crown or a veil that she's wearing, all over her dress, as much as the family could afford or borrow, they'd put all over uh, the bride. And then the bride would be escorted down the road by the groom, taken into the father's house. Now I want you to think of what that means for the church. We're getting adorned with these jewels. Jesus is going to come back for us. We're in the betrothal phase, and eventually we'll get to experience the marriage of the Lamb and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you may be wondering, where's my dowry? Do I have any guarantee? Do I, do I have any gifts? Because I don't know about any gift that the Lord has given me. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Listen to what Paul said. He said, in him... That is, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What dowry do we have? What down payment do we have? It's the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave us when he ascended into heaven. We're also told that the bridegroom himself has gone to prepare a place for us. Hopefully you remember these words from the mouth of Jesus. In John chapter 14 and verse 1, he starts with this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Now taking this in context, he has just told his disciples, he has just told those that are part of the bride of Christ, I am about to be brutally tortured and murdered in Jerusalem. But don't worry about it. Think about that for a moment. They've been waiting. Their family members and ancestors have been waiting for hundreds of years, for about a thousand years, for the Messiah who's been prophesied to come. And now he looks at them and says, your Messiah is here. Now I'm going to be brutally tortured and murdered. But have no fear. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Well, he answers that. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Now, disciples, just in case you're worried that that isn't going to come to fruition, I'm going to give you another sign showing you that I'm going to come back. Y'all remember this from Resurrection Sunday? It's also found in the book of John. When Jesus was crucified and then laid in the tomb and then rose again, remember they went to anoint his body and to go see what had happened. The stone was rolled away. He was gone, but what was left behind? The cloth that had covered his face was folded up in concentric squares and sitting in a corner telling us that nobody stole the body, but that Jesus got up and he was in no rush. He took the time to fold up the face cloth and remember why. This is going back to another ancient custom, but at a meal, especially at a meal celebration of a wedding when they're having the marriage supper. If the groom or a king or somebody else was to get up and they were done, remember, they'd wad up their napkin and they'd throw it on the table. Done. Clean off my plate. I'm not coming back. But if they folded up the napkin and they set it by the plate, that was the, the sign to the uh, servants, don't touch the plate, I'm coming back. Jesus folds up the face cloth to remind us, I'm coming back. I haven't forgotten about you. I'm coming to take you back to where I am. Once that wedding processional that we talked about ends, that's when the big feast begins. I can't wait for that big feast. In fact, it's talked about in verse 9. So look with me at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What is the blessing behind the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, it's our third and final point this morning on this section of our passage, and it's the bounty the bounty of the banquet the bride partakes in and the guests are invited to, it really makes the marriage of the lamb magnificent. Imagine what the spread is going to be like. What is it going to be like to eat there? And by the way, I think this is a literal banquet. We're actually going to eat real food. And I've had people say, well, wait a minute, you eat because you're hungry. That's going to be the blessing of heaven. We're going to eat just for enjoyment. We're not going to be hungry, we're not going to be full, we're not going to get sick, we're not going to get fat. Isn't that great? None of that is going to happen. We can eat to our heart's content and we don't have to worry about Pepto. We don't have to worry about nausea, diarrhea, indigestion. I want to start singing the song, man. This is great. We don't have to worry about any of that. We're just going to get to enjoy the feast. And in fact, there are at least three things from this passage that are going to go on for all of eternity. The first is the food or the blessings that we're going to get to inherit. We'll get to, we'll get to experience it forever. The second thing that's going to go on forever are the festivities that are going to happen at this marriage. We're going to get to worship God forever. We're going to get to adore the groom forever. And then the third thing is the fellowship or the intimacy that we're going to get to enjoy with Jesus and with each other forever. Do you realize that you're sitting next to people that you're going to get to spend eternity with all because of Jesus. And when we get there, those annoying things that your husband does, like leaving the toilet seat up or the cap off the toothpaste, aren't going to happen anymore. Just side note, but I had junior hires and high schoolers ask me one time, do we go to the bathroom in heaven because it stinks? And I'm like, I, I I don't know. And then all of a sudden, you've got these junior hires and high schoolers start talking about, well, well what if, what if you're, like, you're, you're 
the stuff that you did, the bad, it just gets, it gets wings and flies away. And I'm like, how did we get on the conversation of poop growing wings and flying away? But they're thinking. Isn't that great? Your kids, they're thinking. One last thing I need to hit on. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. After all of this, after the thought of what this marriage is going to be like, the clothes that we're going to get from Jesus, the, the, the marriage supper that we're going to get to partake in, all of that, John gets to see all of these glories, and then he still messes up. Look at what he does in verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Well, hold on, who's the him in this passage? It's an angel. We don't worship angels. There, again, there are false religions out there that worship angels. We are never to worship an angel. They are simply a created being made to serve God Almighty. But he said to me, so the angel got it right, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isn't that just such a part of fallen human nature? We see the glory and the majesty of God all around us, and yet we still worship the wrong things. You may be thinking, Pastor, wait a minute, I haven't fallen down at the foot of a tree, at the foot of an angel, or anything else, and worshiped it. But if we stop and think for a moment about what worship is, remember those words, proskuneo, pros towards, kuneo, I kiss, falling down at the feet of someone or something, and dedicating time, dedicating money, or dedicating energy to it. In other words, the scriptures tell us that anything that I dedicate my time, my money, and my energy to has become an idol, and I'm falsely worshiping that. And so as I think back over just even this past week, since last Sunday, I would have to confess that I think I've worshiped things that aren't worthy of worship. I have dedicated time, money, and energy to things that are temporal and trivial and really false gods. And I have to stop and ask for forgiveness. Well, John's going to do it again in Revelation 22. I'm just going to spill the beans. He's going to mess up all over again. And before we get too hard on John, did anybody sin prior to last Sunday? <laughs> There's so many liars sitting in the room. <laughs> Guess what? Y'all just sinned. And you'll probably do it again before next Sunday. But aren't you glad that just like with John, Jesus still keeps using us despite ourselves? He doesn't use us because of who we are. He uses us in spite of who we are. John seems to mess up a few times, and yet Jesus still uses him to write the book of Revelation and to go share the gospel. Aren't you glad that even though you may have messed up last week and you'll probably mess up this coming week, Jesus isn't done with you yet? He's still going to use you to bring himself glory and to grow his kingdom. Well, let's finish this morning with two questions. And what you do with question number one is probably the single most important answer you will ever give to any question that you've ever been asked your entire life. Have you responded to the invitation of Christ's offer to be betrothed and eventually completely married to him? Have you responded to that invitation? If not, Respond today. Here's the second question. Are you worshiping the right person? Are you worshiping Jesus so that you'll be welcomed into his house? Prayerfully, you can answer both of those questions with a definitive yes 
that I have responded to Christ's offer to betrothal and to the eventual marriage phase. And yes, I'm worshiping the right person, Jesus. If your answer is no to either one of those, there's still good news for you. You're not dead yet. So you can choose today to say, I want to say yes to Jesus. Hey, this is a great time of year. We're getting ready to celebrate things like Thanksgiving, and we have so much to be thankful for. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, where we celebrate the good news that God, the creator of the universe, invaded his creation, and he came and he lived amongst it, and then he died, and then he rose again. But we don't have to wait until those days to celebrate that Jesus invaded creation, that God Almighty invaded creation, and that he lived among it, and that he died, and then he rose again. We don't have to wait till Resurrection Sunday to celebrate the power of the resurrection. We could celebrate those 365 days a year. Aren't you glad? You don't have to wait until next Sunday to worship again. You could do it as soon as you leave this place today. You could do it tomorrow morning on a Monday. Yes, I know Mondays are of the devil, but you can get up and you can worship Jesus on a Monday. They're actually not of the devil because God created Monday and Tuesday and all the other days of the week. So I'm hoping and I'm praying that tomorrow morning you wake up just as excited to worship Jesus as you did today. I'm hoping and I'm praying for you right now that you have accepted Jesus' free offer to be married to him. Because remember this, you're married to something. You're chained and enslaved to something. The question is, who is your master? Who is your spouse? I'm praying it's the one that died for you and then rose again. And with, with that, we have the greatest hope and the greatest joy in all of the world. I'm going to spill the beans, but for Advent, for those four weeks that we celebrate the coming and the arrival of Jesus, we're going to take a look at what we call the gifts of Christmas. The ultimate gift is Jesus, but then he, he, he bestows on us or gives us even more gifts. He gives us the gifts of hope. He gives us the gift of love. He gives us the gift of joy and the gift of peace, which we can find nowhere else other than in the person of Jesus. And so we are going to have an absolute blast unpacking those four gifts together. In the meantime, we don't have to wait till Advent to experience hope, love, joy, and peace. We can celebrate those today. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and we confess that you are the King of kings, you are Lord of lords, and Lord, because of that, we can shout out, just like that great multitude, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns and you are on the throne, Lord, regardless of what we see going on around us, regardless of what's happening in our lives, regardless of whether we are struggling through a financial hardship or a social hardship or a, a relational hardship, whatever it is that we're going through, Lord, you sit on the throne and just like that old cowboy that got bit by a rattlesnake, bucked up his horse and kicked in the head, we can know that you can use all of those for your glory and for our good. And when we feel like maybe we've been exiled to the island of Patmos, just like John, would you remind us that even if we were there, we're never alone. That Lord, regardless of whether we go through the deepest valley or we're on cloud nine, that Lord, you are there with us. Just as the psalmist said, even if we are in the depths of Sheol, or Lord, we are lifted up to the heavens, Lord, you are there. And so Lord, we are thankful that you never leave us and you never forsake us. Would you remind us of that this up and coming week. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. Gang, in case you didn't know, it is Balloon Fiesta for the next couple of weeks, which means that this is the time of year that we have more people in the city of Albuquerque than just about any time of the year. 
What a great time to get out there and start telling people about Jesus. You can let them know that these balloons may look really cool and may look majestic, but they don't hold a candle to our Jesus. And so let's go out and share the good news of who he is. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.